Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Your hosts for this episode include myself, Miku, and my partner, Kie. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Contributions are being made to tackle climate change on a global scale, from government commitments to corporate CEOs releasing their yearly carbon reduction targets. Though with every new promise for a better and brighter future, our present day news reports parts of the world working desperately to suppress major climate shocks. Today, we're honing in on the topic of climate action and how Toronto can remain a resilient city in the future to come. Former Chief Resilience Officer Elliot Capel will bring us up to speed on Toronto's resilience strategy, while our second guest, Professor John Robinson, will go beyond resilience to address the multifaceted components that are integral to Toronto's future as a sustainable city. John Robinson is a professor at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy and the School of Environment. He is an honorary professor with the Institute for Resources, Environment and Sustainability at the University of British Columbia, and adjunct professor with Copenhagen Business School. He currently serves as U of T's Presidential Advisor on the Environment, Climate Change and Sustainability. Professor Robinson's research focuses on the intersection of climate change mitigation, adaptation and sustainability the use of visualization, modeling, and citizen engagement to explore sustainable futures, sustainable buildings, and urban design, the role of the university in contributing to sustainability, creating partnerships for sustainability with non-academic partners, and generally, the intersection of sustainability, sociology, and technological change, behavior change, and the community engagement process. Professor Robinson, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us and let us pick at your brain a little bit. My pleasure. So we've generally been touching on the idea of climate resilience more broadly, and many have focused the climate action conversation toward ensuring that governments and worldwide corporations take account of their role in climate change, and rightfully so. But at the same time, I believe that working from the ground up, from the local political economic level, and maintaining focus on the impacts of municipalities remain just as vital to connecting this intricate web that's instigating change. And based on your years of experience, what is it that you believe that we as public policy students should be aware of in order to foster strong leadership for a future sustainable Toronto? Well, that question goes way beyond the where you started, which is the difference between a kind of top-down and a bottom-up approach. But just dealing with that first, um, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, neither in isolation works uh, adequately. We need to change the larger systems that we are part of, the socio-technical systems, systems of governance. We can't get there if we don't have major changes in those. Uh, but we also need changes at, at a much more local and micro level. Um, so, uh, you know, it is a kind of pincer movement where we need both of these things going on. However, to anticipate um, 
the potential some of, of your uh, your later questions. Um, I'm not a big fan of uh, messaging that says it's fundamental that that a crucial part of this is changing individual consumption behavior because I think there's an element of blaming the victim in that. Um, especially as we know that uh, communities that are least able to take action are the ones that are the most impacted by climate change and so on. The whole thrust of Elliot Tapel's work is about building equity deeply into resilience, right? And that's one of the lessons we've learned in the last uh, little while. It's always been true, but it's become more apparent uh, with the pandemic and, and other causes. So yes, we need microaction, we need macroaction, but it, this is not about um, uh, this is not fundamentally about individual consumptive behavior. So uh, with that as background and then turning to your question, what should public policy students be aware of? I think it's useful to think of several levels or strata of response. We can talk about changes in policy, technology and behavior. And my guess is about 85% of the literature is focusing on that. Right, we got to change mm -hmm. these tech, change these policies. We got to induce this behavior change. We need these technologies. So there's a lot of focus on that. The next level up, in a way, is the level of systems, um, and in particular, socio-technical systems and systems of governance. And uh, socio-technical systems. The literature on this is uh, the transition theory literature, uh, pretty massive and growing literature on uh, socio-technical systems change? How do we get uh, fundamental change in these interwoven, interconnected socio-technical systems? Uh, and then what kinds of uh, systems of governance uh, are needed to promote those changes? So that's a whole other kind of level of analysis. I think that's very important to understand. But there's yet another one, which is the level of culture and values. And so in the literature, this tends to be people who say, we don't just need sustainability transitions and transition theory that I mentioned, but transformations. Um, and so there's a whole sort of sub-literature on transformative change, people like Karen O'Brien in Oslo and others. And there they're talking about culture and values. And they're talking, by the way, about exactly this macro-micro thing that you started your question with because they talk about personal transformation and societal transformation. Mm -hmm. I actually think there's yet another <laughs> um, way into this whole problem uh, because the, the transformation one is large. It, it, a lot of it has to do with worldviews and frameworks of understanding. So it's kind of an epistemological question. Right? We have to understand how we understand the world because different understandings lead to very different behaviors, right? So epistemology is in kind of in that third arena, but there's a fourth, I think, which is ontological. Um, maybe we're actually talking not just about our frameworks of understanding, changing how we think, but recognizing completely different realities altogether. And this is where I, my own view from outside, because I'm not indigenous, but this is my, feeling of what indigenous knowledge, the challenge it represents to us, is a challenge of recognizing completely different realities. Um, uh, I, I have a, a good friend at Ohio State who's a historian, uh, talks about the ancient Greeks uh, and their beliefs. Uh, are there spirits in trees? 
Well, no, <laughs> our modern scientific view says no, there just aren't. So they were just wrong. Well, a lot of this kind of fourth analysis, some of the new materialism in the environmental humanities and other work is saying, well, wait a minute, maybe we have to rethink some of our most fundamental uh, understandings of the nature of, of the world itself. So if you ask what public policy students should know, I think it's useful to, to think in terms of these multiple levels of analysis and mm -hmm. recognize some critiques are coming in at the policy level. That's fine. It's not that that's not the right level. They're all, they all have their value. They all have their worth, but they're different. Um, so uh, changing policies, changing technologies, changing behaviors may not get us everywhere we want to go. So maybe we have to change these socio-technical systems. And maybe even that isn't enough. Maybe we need to simultaneously operate at all these different levels at once. So a long-winded answer to your question. I don't know how helpful that is. No, but it's interesting. There's a lot of layers that you have to really break down. And I think that, I mean, not that I've worked in government yet, but from many stories that I've told and just from experience and seeing in the news, you can tell it's very difficult to break down or piece apart aspects of bureaucracy that are so tightly built together and that you've experienced as well when you're at UBC. I read your blog about talking about trying to put together the center of sustainability and dealing with all those difficulties. Right, right. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's not just a matter of saying, do this thing and everything will change. Uh, implement this approach, build this building. In fact, building the building turned out to require all kinds of other changes we hadn't even thought about when we went into the exercise. So these things are all tightly coupled. Yeah, I can imagine. And when we're thinking from the perspective of the local political economy, mm -hmm. we need to take into account that shared spaces in a community socially construct collective meaning. So with that in mind, how can we make sure to prepare for climate change, not only in terms of mitigation on behalf of the government, but also in terms of adaptation on behalf of civil society? Well, there's a couple of problems here. Uh, the first one is really the uh, fault of the research community. And that was uh, with the second assessment report of the IPC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, they changed the structure of the working groups to the structure that has still, uh, that's still in operation today. So working group one does the science, working group two does impacts and adaptation, working group three does mitigation and sustainability. And so that separation of adaptation and mitigation happened right in the research community. Um, I was a lead author in, for three of the assessment reports over about, over about 15 years. And in the fourth assessment report, we had two people that were actually lead authors in both working group two on adaptation and working group three on mitigation. I was one of those two people. So the whole system was set up uh, that's in a way that separated those two worlds. And government departments have been set up that way as well. So if you take the city of Toronto, it's a good example. We have the environment and climate division of the city, used to be uh, environment and energy, but now it's been renamed environment and climate. Um, uh, and its focus is mitigation. And the whole fo focus of Transform TO, the climate action strategy of the cities is mitigation historically has been mitigation since its inception in 2017. Um, meanwhile, uh, the 100 Cities Rockefeller program uh, created 
a chief resilience officer. Toronto was one of the 100 cities, so they hired Elliot Capel, and he did a whole resilience uh, strategy development. But look what happened when he, when that money ran out from Rockefeller, that position was not maintained. Mm -hmm. And so what we have is really dozens of staff working on mitigation. And I think there's one staff in the deputy manager's office uh, working on resilience still uh, out of that office. So that's a huge disparity. Now, to their credit, the Environment and Climate Division staff have recognized that, and they're trying to build resilience back in to their own Transform TO efforts. And in fact, uh, several of the groups in our class this year are specifically focusing on that. So that's a really good thing. But it just, it just the fact that they had to go reach out and, and try to make that happen, it didn't happen naturally, is a result of this separation. On the one side, impacts and adaptation. On the other side, mitigation and sustainability. I'm sorry, impacts, adaptation, and resilience on the one side, and uh, mitigation and sustainability. We have to integrate them. Um, my favorite example is many energy efficiency measures uh, obviously have mitigation effects. They reduce emissions, but they're also highly resilient. They, you can future-proof your building by making it more energy efficient you're more adaptable and you're more resilient to, to shocks in say energy prices. Um, so there's an example of, of, of policies that actually have both effects, but tend to be looked at as one rather than as both. We need what we used to call about 10 years ago, we developed a framework we called SAM, Sustainability Adaptation Mitigation. Um, and that's what I think we need, very integrative approaches that, uh, that work together. And one of the good things that's happened in the last few years is uh, that it's become uh, more apparent politically that if we don't address equity and social justice issues at the front end of our policy programs, not as an afterthought tacked on at the end, but right built into the program from the beginning, they're going to fail. So that's bringing resilience and adaptation into the discussion at an earlier stage. I think that's a very good development. So I think in the end, we're going to see much more integrated programs in cities uh, and, and other levels of government just, just because there's so much pressure now to, to do that. So that's a very positive outcome. I mean, the pandemic didn't make that happen, but it certainly reinforced attendance. Mm -hmm. And do you see this happening at like a community level? Yeah, I think so, because I think if you go out to communities and talk to them and, 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 and throw away the old playbook, which was we've got to educate them, make them literate in some way about climate or energy, and then we have to get them to change their behavior. If you throw away that playbook and say, let's actually just listen to what the communities want, and what kind of world they want for their kids to grow up in, what kind of city they want their kids to grow up in. Um, what you'll find is a lot, it's a very integrated thing. It, there isn't mitigation over here and adaptation over here. They want resilience, they want sustainability, they want uh, programs that uh, reduce their uh, costs and make their, uh, their uh, houses more uh, future-proof their houses against uh, in, increases in energy prices but also against extreme weather events and so on. So I think the average person in their life in their neighborhood 
doesn't see these as separate things. They just see a, a world, a single world that they want to be uh, work better for them. Um, so I think we're going to have to, uh, if we take seriously any kind of process of engaging the citizenry on these issues, we're going to have to take them up. Excuse me, a much more integrated approach. Yeah, of course. Do you have a story related to global affairs or public policy that is thought-provoking, controversial, and potentially newsworthy? The world is full of people who break the rules and exploit it to their own advantage. We want to find out why they're doing it and why they're getting away with it. Let Beyond the Headlines help you make the headlines by telling your story through our platform. Hopefully we can be your catalyst for change. We produce a variety of content and are open to investigate journalism and reporting. Get in touch through our contact form at www.beyondtheheadlines.net slash contact. Yeah, thank you so much, Professor. And now I would like to focus back on the um, Toronto's current situations. Mm -hmm. So since Toronto was added to the 100 Resilient Cities Network and in 2019, do you think there are any new priorities or climate action opportunities that Toronto should acknowledge to prepare for climate change now? Yeah, I've mentioned one of them, uh, this idea that equity and social justice and all the other dimensions of a kind of EDI approach have to be front and center. Um, they, they just need, and they need to be woven into the very fabric of the policies. Uh, they're not just something that gets added on. Um, uh, they have to be part of the core uh, program design. So that's one. I think that's huge because I actually don't think we're going to succeed if we don't do that. We're just not going to reach our targets if we don't do that. Um, so that's good, I think. Uh, the second one is uh, we need a lot of experimentation and there is a lot of experimentation going on. One of the good things about the fact that all this, the center of gravity of climate action has really moved from the national level down to the municipal level, right? There's just so much more energy and activity now at the municipal level. Um, mm -hmm. One of the good things about that is there are thousands of cities. And so there's lots of experimentation, lots of different things being tried. There's only 180 or so you know, national uh, nations. So uh, there's limited amount of experimentation. So we have all kinds of stuff going on around the world. And that's really important. We've got to try stuff out and see what works. We've got to look at Curitiba's, you know, transit innovations from 25 years ago and say, you know, how transferable are they? Uh, we just, so I think experimentation and therefore what cities need to do is have this kind of lookout capability, this foresight capability on the one hand, so they can look at different scenarios into the future, but also uh, lookout capability, jurisdictional scans, uh, you know, what's going on in, in related cities. Um, now, it's not that simple because Copenhagen might be doing something wonderful, but you can't necessarily transfer it into Toronto, right? There's different, you know, weak mayor versus strong mayor systems, although we're morphing sort of from one to the other. Um, uh, but that makes a big difference. Uh, the, the governance of cities in, in Denmark is very different than in, in Canada. So you can't just transfer things easily. The art of it is to say, how could we do something like that? That worked really well there uh, in Singapore or in Paris or wherever it is. Uh, how, you know, what, what can we learn from that that we could adopt? Uh, 
and vice versa. There's learning in both directions. So I think uh, social justice and equity, number one. Number two, experimentation, uh, try out things. And number three, this kind of lookout capability and uh, foresight capability. Oh, okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for this multi-angles answers. And then um, since people, uh, people or citizens in their daily life um, just cannot realize the negative impacts of climate change immediate, immediately or easily, so what do you think can be achieved to raise public awareness of environmental protection or the actions about climate change so that they can positively and actively participate in actions against climate change? Um, well, the first thing I think is to recognize information doesn't change behavior. So if we're doing all this education and literacy stuff in order to make people do things differently, it's, it's just not going to work. It doesn't work very well at all. Um, the second thing is, uh, as I said earlier, let's not blame the victims by saying they have to make the changes um, uh, and let companies and governments off the hook. Right, that we don't want to do that because, as we said earlier, we need both. Right, we need uh, lots of action at both levels. So don't let's focus on individual behavior change. That's really not the crucial component of this. I'm more interested in engaging citizens to put pressure on governments than to engage them in order to change their behavior. For example, mm -hmm. um, I'd also say let's not suboptimize on climate change. Uh, climate change is really important, but it's not the only important thing. Uh, there's tons of other really important things, and they all interact with climate change. So we need to take a much broader focus than a climate change focus. And my favorite example of that is the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Look at those 17 SDGs, and you realize sustainability. you don't get to sustainability just by dealing with climate change. Uh, you, the number one is poverty, right? Uh, and the point about those 17, they're dynamically interconnected. We can't solve any of them in isolation. So that's a crucial point too. Don't sub-optimize on climate change. Recognize it's part of a larger question about what kind of world we want to live in and how to get there from here. Um, then having said all that, uh, I think there's huge potential for neighborhood or community scale engagement. Let's work with neighborhoods where they are. Let's listen to them more than we you know, lecture at them. Um, let's try to come up with pathways uh, that would work for those neighborhoods, that would be sustainable, that would embody climate action, but also address their real concerns about affordability and about uh, uh, racial uh, disparities and on and on and on. So I think that's. That's crucial. We have to go and, and talk uh, and work with neighborhoods where, where they are and where they live. Um, and that's a way to uh, encourage collective action. Um, politicians cannot easily act without a constituency, right? If you have a politician, they want to do something, but they're out on their own. There's no political support for it. They get cut off at the knees, right? So they need a constituency for change. So I think social mobilization is a crucial venue for uh, political change, um, building the constituencies for change. But those to do that, you've got to listen, as I said, listen a lot so that the 
the changes sometimes are different than you expect when you start the process. So a whole bunch of well-meaning activists uh, or academics or researchers or, or bureaucrats going out and telling people what they should do is not a good recipe for creating this collective action and this social mobilization. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, and I'll give you one example. I think um, instead of telling people they should consume less, uh, which is a pretty, uh, it, it induces a lot of um, uh, apathy and denial, I think, on the part of the people uh, that we're talking to often. Uh, how about if we said, here's how you can be an agent of change in your place of employment. Here's some tips and tools uh, and tricks that you can use to try and uh, mobilize support for change at a collective level at the institutional level. I think that's more exciting for people and it also speaks to the issues more than saying recycle more uh, or you know don't fly as much or all of those kinds of things. Because if our message is everything you like, you have to do less of. My guess is we're not going to be having a lot of influence or effective uh, response. Uh, if our if our advice is let's work together to figure out ways we can change the systems that are producing undesirable outcomes, including but not limited to climate change, mm -hmm. uh, then I think you know we have a better chance. There's no guarantees, but we have a better chance. Thank you. That's great. Um, I also wanted to touch back on what we brought up, what I brought up earlier, talking about your work at UBC, because I personally find it really interesting. And um, while conducting work at the UBC, you served as the executive director for the UBC Sustainability Initiative, taking a major part in a 12-year process to design and create the Center for Interactive Research on Sustainability. And after all the hard work that put in that you put into bringing this project to life, uh, you went on to create a blog post discussing the five lessons that you learned from this process, using metaphors to provide as a sort of visual aid for each lesson. And one lesson you learned involved the importance of maintaining strong partnerships with non-academic organizations, using the metaphor of a mosaic, where the glue that brought each tile together was the many partnerships with private, public, and NGO sectors. And I'm curious to talk about this more because I also it was brought up lately with in discussion with Elliot about corporations or consulting firms that are attending climate initiatives such as COP. So I wanted to ask, right. do you think these multidisciplinary partnerships can work together from a public policy perspective to ensure equitable change and preparation for climate change? Yeah, in fact, I think it, it's essential. Uh, it's crucial. But it, in order for this to work, the whole academic world has to unlearn some things and learn some new things. Um, you've heard the term transdisciplinary uh, knowledge co-production um, mm -hmm. and all the codes, co-creation, co-design, co-implementation, co-management, all the codes, right? Uh, they're all the rage these days. But in fact, to do that well, to engage in uh, respectful and reciprocal relationships with non-academic partners is really hard for academics because we're not trained in that. We're trained in the opposite. We're trained in extractive research where society is a source of data to us. And our main audience is other academics 
who read the journal articles, right? Which are impenetrable to all our partners. So that's not a model for success in you know, real partnership at all. So we have to unlearn that and learn this new way of engaging. Um, one of the things we're doing here at U of T is developing workshops for junior career faculty, early career faculty, postdocs and PhD students on how to do this uh, knowledge co-production. Uh, what, are, what are the ways we can develop partnerships? My, almost all my work now is entirely in this area. Um, so this course, for example, the reason uh, uh, it is about connecting to transform TO is exactly that. I think the university has to step up and start helping it, the city achieve these targets. We've got to engage much more than we have in the past. Individual faculty have, have always done this, but it's left up to individuals, right? I think the university has to engage as an entity. Um, so this course last year was even more that way. And we're doing 10 other projects where we're trying to in, interact very actively with the city and, the, and with the various sectors within the, the city, not just the city government, but the private sector, civil society groups, other agencies, public sector agencies. We, we need a, just a ton of collaboration because we've got to change almost everything that we do. Um, and uh, that, that doesn't happen by someone turning a switch or pulling a lever you know, in, the, in the corridors of power. Uh, that doesn't work. Uh, and so uh, we need, we need more, way more horizontality in the university, but beyond. And we need to learn how to do that. Um, we, we academics in particular, because we've been trained differently. Um, so I think it's essential. Uh, the, the, uh, all those metaphors, I use them all the time, uh, but the mosaic one for sure, uh, we have to be the grout, you know, mm -hmm. connecting with the different partners. Mm -hmm. I find it interesting that you focus on the academic sector to broaden its horizons and work on itself in that sense. I myself would think to be more skeptical of private institutions and thinking to make sure that they are acting in the right ways towards climate action. But also in throughout working on this podcast episode, I'm thinking that might be an antiquated thought because there is social pressure, of course, to make sure that these private organizations are putting their act together to reach these climate goals and carbon lower their carbon emissions. But um, it's the institutions themselves and the people that work within that group right. that you need to keep track of. There's no question the private sector is driven by a profit motive, by definition. That's what a market is, right? Our market institutions are all about. Um, and that's not going to go away. But if you look around, you see a couple of things. You see the emergence of social enterprises and the growing amount of them, B Corp types of activities as well, benefit corporations and so on. There's way more of that than there used to be. But even more important, I think, everybody younger than me has grown up with an awareness of these problems. When I started doing this in the early 1970s, I hate to tell you, um, uh, you know, the, the, this was not uh, well understood anywhere else other than, you know, little groups of NGOs and, you know, academics um, beating the drums. But certainly it wasn't uh, something going on in the private sector in any significant way. But now what you have is people who are moving into senior management, they're in middle management, have grown up aware of these problems. There is an incredibly receptive audience out there 
in not just the private sector, in the public sector as well, and in civil society. But we're, ta we're talking about the private sector. It's out there. There are people who want to make change, who want to do good things. What we have to do if we think of public policy is, is uh, set the conditions that will encourage that, that will support that. We're not going to overthrow capitalism, I don't think, at least not in the time frame we need to do a lot of things. Um, uh, but we can subvert it in some ways. You know, we can we can help to channel. Uh, there's pressure coming from the market itself, from customers. Uh, that's that's somewhat limited, I think, but it's there. There's all of the more activist elements of the private sector, and then there's the the Michael Porter kinds of arguments you probably have run into, where uh, sustainability is value creation, where this is a way for business to actually do well by doing good. Now there's yeah. a limit how far that can go. And there's a real question of who's co-opting whom. <laughs> green growth and all that stuff uh, is often just uh, you know, greenwashing of various kinds. So there's a ton of, as, as someone once said decades ago, uh, the growth industry of the 1990s is green bullshit. And you know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of that uh, going on for sure. Greenwashing, no question. Nevertheless, there is also really good stuff going on. Um, and uh, so our job, I think, as academics uh, or as public policy people, if you like, is to support that and to reinforce those tendencies without claiming to be transforming, you know, the whole uh, private sector. Uh, nevertheless, there's things that can be done. So I'm, I'm optimistic. In fact, I would put it another way. If we don't subvert the private sector successfully, we'll fail. It's the biggest engine of change on the planet. Right, mm. it just is, and so it has to be converted or subverted, um, or we fail. So we need to bend all our efforts in that direction, without being well, being mindful of the degree to which co-optation can happen, right, uh, and uh, and greenwashing and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, it can all be done in a soon enough time where we don't have to face too many major climate shocks i mean i know that a lot is not inevitable but there are some high likelihoods i i believe we have the time it takes it's just the longer it takes the more negative the consequences are going to be right but mm -hmm. it's going to take as long as it takes that you know that's almost a um uh a tautology uh so yeah we need to move as quickly as we can but recognize that even if we're moving less quickly than uh, desirable, we still have to move, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so we want to encourage whatever we can find. I'm a big fan of the idea of bright spots of the Anthropocene, of, of leverage points. I don't know if you know the work of the Rapid Transition Alliance, where they study past examples of rapid societal change and make the point that it happens all the time really fast change. It's not, it's not beyond our power to imagine or to undertake those kinds of changes. It's happened before. So I think all of these uh, attempts to look for points of leverage and ways that we can encourage the, the right changes, we, we don't actually have much choice. That's what we have to do. Um, so I'm a bit resistant to the uh, idea that if it doesn't happen in the next three years, it's over, you know, game over. Because uh, I don't think that helps us very much. We're still going to be here in three years, uh, one way or the other. And the more we do before then, the better, of course. But we're still going to have lots to do. 
um, you know, as these deadlines passed. I've been, I've seen a lot of them. There was the turnaround decade. The 1990s was supposed to be the turnaround decade. That's way before your time. But there was this feeling, oh, it's gotta happen this decade or we're screwed. Well, let's have every decade it's, that's been said. And, you know, we still have to keep going. Yeah. And with that, with the information that we got, hopefully other public policy students and people abroad can listen in and take that advice and we can all get moving together. <laughs> I think people want a better world. They want a better life. They're in, I don't hear a lot of people arguing for unsustainability. So, for sure. I, you know, I think yeah. the, the makings are there for significant change. Uh, we just have to do our own piece, you know, whatever that is. If it's, if it's a public policy piece, that's fine. A private sector piece, uh, that's fine. A research piece, you know, we all do different things, but uh, I, I am, I, in the end, I'm an optimist about our ability to, uh, to make the changes we need to make. That's great. And that's very inspirational. So thank you. On My behalf pleasure. of our generation, <laughs> <laughs> Professor John Robinson, thank you very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. That wraps up our show for this week. We were joined today by Elliot Capel and Professor John Robinson. Many thanks to them for coming onto the show to discuss Toronto's resilience strategy and future steps we need to take to maintain that resilience. Today's show was produced by myself, Niku, alongside my co-producer, Kie. If you liked today's episode, please like and review us wherever you are listening. The views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any parts of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all of our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show and want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.